electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. And on this Monday, I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead this hour. There's Washington and then there's Wall Street. Treasury Secretary Yellen ratcheting up the rhetoric on the debt ceiling, warning of financial and economic chaos. The president about to convene an emergency meeting on it. But investors don't seem too concerned. Even Warren Buffett this weekend saying he's not worried. So is that presenting some interesting buying opportunities or not? We'll debate. Oil's also higher again today as the good vibes continue. Could it be the beginning of a meaningful recovery or will a supply gut glut thwart those hopes? We'll discuss how to position. And an under-the-radar consumer stock that could be impacted by something in Washington. And we're not talking about the debt ceiling with this one. It's all coming up. But first, to Dom Chu with today's markets. And Dom, it's red. It's mildly. red, but it's a very even-keeled start to a new trading week, Kelly. And to your point, good vibes. Don't worry, be happy, whatever the theme you want to put in there is. The debt ceiling debacle that's happening in Washington right now is not really playing out in the markets because even with all the brinksmanship, the markets don't seem that worried. The S&P 500 is still solidly above 4,100, 4,133 the last trade there, down about three points. And it's been a narrow trading range today. At the highs of the session, we were positive by about four points, down nine points at the low of the session. So with that spread of just 13 points in the S&P, very, very even-keeled start to the trading week. Now, the Dow Industrials down about 90 points, 33,582. The Nasdaq Composite just about flat on the session as well right now, 12,230. One place that has seen some outsized volatility is in cryptocurrency, specifically in Bitcoin. This on word that Binance, the big global exchange for cryptocurrencies, halted withdrawals multiple times for Bitcoin because of what they characterized as increased network traffic. It cost more to transact there. Bitcoin price is 27,863. It's been roughly there pretty much all day, down about 3 to 4% right now. So we'll keep an eye on that. And by the way, it's still within this kind of trading range that we've seen over the last couple of months, floating between 27,000 and 30,000 in that level. So we'll watch Bitcoin. And then Tyson Foods, big food processor, specifically meats, pork, chicken, beef. It's tanking today, down about 15.5%. A surprise loss on weaker-than-expected revenues, and they cut their full-year forecast. They're talking about some pressures pricing-wise with regard to input costs for meat. At the same time, certain pricing pressures that are not being able to be realized on selling those goods to end consumers. So profit margins, a big question right now. Tyson Foods down about 15.5%, Kelly, one of the big movers of the day. And it speaks to that inflation narrative, right, across all of America right now. I mean, that's what I was going to ask. So it's basically they are at the maybe the front end of what could soon be happening with the rest of the S&P 500. You know, when you this is the the warning about profit margins collapsing down 15 percent. That's a really I'm I'm glad you flagged that. Well, it's not not just that, Kelly. I mean, this is about the raw materials cost still increasing for them, but them not being able to perhaps sell for as much. Right. Mm -hmm as other folks can. Wow, that's a really interesting one, down 43% in a year now. Dom, we'll see you in an hour. I appreciate it. Dom Chu. The president, meanwhile, convening an emergency meeting tomorrow with top congressional leaders as the debt ceiling exudate looms. Let's get to Eamon Javers. He's live in Washington with the latest. Hi, Eamon. 
Hey there, Kelly. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is making a dire prediction about what will happen in financial markets if the United States were to default on its debt in early June. We would simply not have enough cash to meet all of our obligations. And um, it, it's widely agreed that financial and economic chaos would ensue. Economic chaos there, she says. Yellen says tax receipts have been coming in light this year. That moves the X date for default earlier than what she had expected. And she says the Treasury is also using so-called extraordinary measures to fund the government and keep things running right now. President Biden, as you say, Kelly, he's called top congressional leaders to the White House tomorrow to see if they can hammer out a deal. The president says he wants a clean debt ceiling increase, which would allow the U.S. government to continue to borrow money to fund its operations without any additional provisions attached, but Republicans say they want to pair any debt ceiling increase with a package of spending cuts. Now, the senators will be in the room tomorrow, but the action is really going to be between Biden and Speaker McCarthy. As Senator Mitch McConnell said, the only solution to this impasse is going to be a deal between the president and the Speaker of the House. And he said that leaders should quit wasting time. Kelly, back over to you. I wonder what happens, you know, if Brian Reynolds is right and we're not actually careening towards it and Yellen just wants a deal done because that's her job as Treasury Secretary. We, you know, she's been doing stuff since January, extraordinary measures. You know, if we're not going to actually run right into it, what happens? You know, markets aren't going to sell off then or they're not going to push people yeah. to come to a deal. If we get corporate tax receipts June 15th and it could go a couple more months, I'm wondering if the real if this really comes to a head maybe in the fall or over Christmas time again when it becomes a government shutdown and a debt ceiling in one of those kinds of episodes. That's a good question. If tax revenues come in heavier than expected, uh, then maybe they could kick the can down the road a little bit. But you always get these sort of stare downs between Washington and Wall Street on this debt ceiling where the politicians are waiting to see if the financial markets blink. Uh, the financial markets don't blink, though, because they believe that the politicians are going to come up with a solution. And you don't get the deal until after you go through some deadline and markets start to react. And when you see markets moving down sharply on news, that's when politicians say, oh, we better take some action here and get this thing done. So yeah. everyone's waiting for everybody else. Right. Exactly. There should be like a play where that's the Seinfeld episode or something. Eamon, thank you. Waiting for the debt ceiling. Right. <laughs> Eamon Jabbers. We won't, uh, don't yeah. miss, by the way, the Treasury Secretary herself, Janet Yellen, will be on Closing Bell Overtime today, 4 p.m. Eastern, and we'll have a chance to hear from her directly about this. Investors not too concerned yet. The Dow flat since the House passed its debt ceiling bill. The Nasdaq up 3%. Is all of this just political posturing to get a deal done now? As I said, Brian Reynolds told us last week, it's not an imminent problem. Warren Buffett this weekend said he isn't concerned. And if we're not about to hit it, how much higher can the markets run? Joining me now to discuss, Dan Suzuki is Deputy Chief Investment Officer at Richard Bernstein Advisors, and Bill Stone is Chief Investment Officer at the Glenview Trust Company and a Berkshire shareholder. Welcome to both of you. Dan, just real quickly on this debt ceiling issue, what, do you, what is your investing advice? Yeah, Kelly, I think the investing advice uh, is very much aligned with what Warren Buffett said over the weekend. I think you really shouldn't try to react to this. Like, this is not something that's based on economic fundamentals that you can predict. Uh, this is really like predicting a hurricane. We know we're in hurricane season. But I think the, the, what, the how you respond to this and how the markets respond really should be a function of your time horizon. If you only care about the next five to 10 days or five to 10 weeks, then sure, this could be a big market moving, volatile event for markets. But as you look past that, 
over the next five to 10 months, I think this is all going to settle out. The actual impact on economic and profit fundamentals is going to be pretty minimal. So therefore, the lasting impact on our markets over that time horizon is probably going to be pretty small. Bill, are you constructive on the markets overall? You know, I, I was struck kind of seeing some of the upgrades today. OK, maybe the S&P is going to 4,400 now uh, if this kind of run continues that we've had to start the year. Uh, what are you doing in this kind of environment? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I was constructive going into the year. I, I, I got to be honest, did not expect it to, to do this well this early. Um, so I'm probably a little bit more cautious at the moment just because I, I do think the economy is going to start softening up more here in the second half. I mean, you heard some of that from Warren Buffett uh, on Saturday talking about that most of the businesses that Berkshire owns, and it's so widely diversified in terms of businesses it owns that I think it's a pretty good proxy for thinking about the overall economy, that they were going to likely have you know down earnings year over year. So I, I think it, it's worth keeping that in the back of your mind. So I think for us, it's just continuing to focus on you know high quality companies that we're not going to have to worry about if in fact the recession uh, comes. You know, it doesn't mean the stocks don't go down, but I don't have to worry about them necessarily going out of business or something else. So you know, um, I think that's important. Well, it was interesting, Bill, over the weekend to kind of hear the rhetoric about the banks and to see the signs that Buffett and Munger put up to kind of mock the accounting <laughs> practices and to certainly, if anything, they've paired their bank holdings in recent years and they're certainly not moving in. And now and kind of blaming management like at First Republic for, uh, you know, writing a lot of those mortgages. So as you, someone, you, I know you like Bank of America, but mm. what does that tell you really about the juncture we're at, uh, broadly speaking, where you don't see these guys saying, yeah, it's, it's cheap, you know, fear is priced in. They're, they're very much on the sidelines here, whether it's for the banks or kind of the markets more broadly. Yeah, and I think they would say, you know, we're in, let's, I'm just going to use Bank of America as the example, and, and they may actually be the beneficiary, right? I think it's the very large versus the smaller banks issue right now. Um, and it's really unclear. You know, one is you've got, they talked about it at the meeting, is you've got all of this commercial real estate that needs to roll over uh, their loans eventually. And most of that is held by smaller banks, not the biggest of the banks. Um, and they certainly talked about that. So I think that's why they're just not in the place of wanting to dive in there. And Frankly, the valuations, you know, aren't that much different, right? Bank of America, you can buy for eight times earnings. Hmm. Um, so it's not like it's really expensive relative. So I, I think that's why they're just saying, well, we'll just wait this out. And obviously, if one of them or they see something that gets completely crushed or gets hit hard, that there's an opportunity. I'm sure they would go into it if they uh, right. thought that the assets were good. But, but yeah, I think that's why they're a little bit of uh, – on the sideline. Right. Or I guess my point is, you know, we're not getting that reassurance that that mm -hmm. we're at that crisis point yet. You know, that they're still saying, no, nope, not so sure. You know, they, they come in when everyone else is, is terrified. Dana, you know, Suzuki and Bernstein, you know, Munger and Buffett, some of the great uh, pairings here. What what are you guys arguing about? You know, in, in I know that healthcare and staples and utilities. I mean, is it hard to stick with that defensive bias in a market like this or or just kind of bring me inside your room a little bit when you guys are trying to figure out strategy for in this very odd environment. Yeah, Kelly, I think that the uh, the main sort of debate and balance you have to we're trying to struggle with right now is, you know, how to balance the next five to 10 months versus the next five to 10 years. You know, the luxury that Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger have is they really only care about the next 10 years. And that's why they tell you they don't care what happens this year, next year, the year after that. Um, we uh, do have to care about what happens over the next year or two. And so that's why, you know, what we're focused on this is the fact that we're in a deepening profits recession and liquidity is tightening, which suggests that you want to be focused 
focused on high quality defensives. But if you compare that to the next five to 10 years, I think, you know, owning the banks, owning energy companies, owning a lot of these cyclical and cheap assets around the world is going to prove to be a very profitable investment. But I think it's just too early given, you know, the headwinds we're facing in the near term. Sure. And I guess final question, Bill. I mean, Kraft Heinz is another company you're looking at, but that again feels to me very kind of bull markety, like like a bull market value investment. Is there anything yet that's getting you itchy where you look and you say, you know what, valuations or some of these regional banks or super regionals or whatever, or I don't know, you know, not that you'd be shorting, but is there anything that really feels to you like a big opportunity right now? Or do you accumulate or, or have a decent amount of cash on the sidelines so that maybe in three or six or nine months, if there are bigger opportunities that you can pounce on them? Yeah, I think you, uh, you know, you probably do. Like I said, I'm, I'm a little less uh, optimistic than I was to start the year just because the markets run up a bit. So yeah, I'm kind of waiting for that opportunity. And you know, we had bought some technology when they got hit pretty hard last year. Um, so, you know, that's run again. So it's, it's hard to, you know, I'm looking around, uh, for, for something, but, uh, probably the only place, honestly, is if you've got a longer time frame, it's some of the financials. I think, you know, I've talked, uh, you know, before about, I think Schwab is really interesting if you've got a long enough time frame on it. And it's a high quality company. I'm not worried about going away either. Um, but again, you, you better have a, a longer time frame because I think it, short run, the, the profits will probably be crimped a bit by this whole cash sorting issue. Yeah, no, and uh, the caution I hear from both of you, you know, it's a good reminder as we all kind of are off to the races uh, in this environment. Thanks for joining me today, guys. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Kelly. Dan Suzuki and Bill Stone. Well, the debt ceiling isn't the only potential stumbling block coming out of Washington. Student loan payments are also about to resume. The COVID-era moratorium likely to sunset by the end of August, if not sooner. Wells Fargo placed a number of companies, or flagged, I should say, with what they believe is the highest exposure to student loan debt, including Target, Best Buy, and the fitness brand Lifetime. Lifetime shares have surged more than 25% just in a month after strong earnings. They're up 71% so far this year. They're also trading at about a 65 times forward P.E. Their comps were up 25% last quarter. They hit more than 800,000 members. But could student loan repayments thwart their impressive growth? Let's ask Bahra Makrati. He is the CEO of Lifetime. It's great to have you here. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I mean, you guys are really, why are you having such a moment? This is very surprising. And I'm seeing that they're going up everywhere. Uh, that's an interesting uh, view. Just like your conversation before, this isn't a one year or two year propositions. Lifetime has been around for 30 years. For 30 years, we have focused on building desirability. We've focused on building a place that people want to go to, to get the happy, to be happy, to be healthy, it's an athletic country club combination across the country. And the, what we offer, we're the only uniquely company that does that in, in, in aggregate. There's nobody else like Lifetime. Yeah. And what all it has taken is for the business to re-ramp the way that it always ramps. When we started a new club, it takes three, four years to, to mm -hmm. ramp. After the COVID, we were virtually shut down substantially still through April of 2022. Wow. So it's really been just a year. The, co the clubs are re-ramping. All the programming that we put in place, small group training, pickleball, uh, the you know, DPT for training, all the different programs we put in, they're all working. And they're all just starting to get momentum sure. in that. So our membership is building. The customer loves Lifetime. They can't find anything else that replicates Lifetime. 
particularly on a national basis. Yeah. So the customers are just coming in. They love the product. They love our performers. They love the place. They love the beach clubs. And they just come in and go through the routine. So what we have been showing the street is what we had expected to happen. So let me just point out your average membership could be over 200 a month in some of these newer areas where you're opening up an athletic country club really captures it. Maybe an observation or a question about whether you can save shopping malls and some other uh, shopping centers who are going to be looking to fill massive chunks of real estate because I obviously see a lot of locations going up there. Um, Because 44 percent of your members are under 35 years old, 60 percent of them have a college education. That's why some of these analysts say, "Okay, when repayments start in a couple of months time, your You can't laugh. He's already saying, forget about it. They're never going to turn off their lifetime membership. They might. You don't know. They might. Well, okay. So we are talking about absolute or we're talking about the total. If you're thinking about the number of people who get a little pinch during a recession and then the financial forces them to drop some of the spending, there are those who actually end up having more time on their hand. And for a lifetime, that's a zero-sum game. Basically, in all past recessions, with exception of the Great Recession, which we had a little more dip, every other recession, the number of people who come to the clubs, because now they have more time Hmm. uh, for their leisure time to come to lifetime, offsets those who maybe have a little bit of a pinching. Our, Our positioning is such that the customer that we have is very resilient. And even at $250 per month is $3,000 for a year. That's one trip that you would take, one vacation trip. And now you can use these clubs 8, 10 hours a day, 365 days a year. There is no other healthy entertainment that replaces Lifetime. The mistake that the analyst or other people are making, they keep comparing Lifetime to gyms. And that's where they're going to go wrong. I'm going to go wrong again, and I'm going to go wrong again. Lifetime is an athletic country club. It's like a resort. It's a healthy entertainment, and the customer is showing Mm -hmm. everybody that they love the brand, and they keep coming back. Well, maybe then I don't even have to ask if uh, WeGoV and and Ozempic are going to uh, take away your client. You know, athletic country club is a bit of a different thing. Uh, Thank you so much, Bahram, for joining us today. Uh, Congrats again, and, and we will follow with continued interest. We really appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. Bahram Akradi, the founder, chairman, and CEO of Lifetime. Still ahead, oil coming off a three-week losing streak. Is today's rally the start of a comeback, or will supply gluts set back those hopes? We'll dive into that with crude up 2.5%. Plus, three more names on deck to report PayPal, Lucid, and Warner Music Group. One of them already in AI play. We'll tell you which. And as we head to break, let's get a quick look at the markets. Uh, oil might be in the green, the Nasdaq fractionally now, but the Dow and S&P and Russell are still red. The 10-year note below 350. The exchange is back after this. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. 
specialised across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Oil rebounding today on easing recession fears, and the bounce back comes after three straight weekly declines. But one thing that hasn't bounced back is deal-making. Despite big oil sitting out on record amounts of cash, mergers and acquisitions in the oil and gas sector were at a two-year low in the first quarter. That's according to Enveris, the energy analytics firm. Just 16 deals were completed, compared with 45 in the same period a year earlier. Let's talk about that and what it means for energy stocks. Dan Pickering is CIO of Pickering Energy Partners. It's good to see you, Dan. Welcome. Hi, Kelly. Good to be here. These have been tough days for bank investors and in some ways tough days for energy investors as well. But I guess you guys have the benefit of the fact that whatever happens with crude, if you're still at a level where the companies can throw off a ton of cash, you you think you'd do okay. The companies we talked about last time, Permian Diamond Offshore, you know, they're flat to up in what's been kind of a difficult macro. That's right, Kelly. The absolute level of prices is is strong. You know, energy has been a weak group this year after two really good years. You know, energy fundamentals are generally better than energy prices right now. And so I think that we're, we're having a little bit of a digestion period and, and risk off uh, and a risk off environment has has hit this group and has hit crude like it's hit uh, everything else. But I still think there's great cash flow and great firepower uh, for some growth in M&A as we move ahead. Do you like the names we talked about last time still or are you kind of changing emphasis? No, I still like the names we talked about. Um, you know, you mentioned Permian Resources, uh, fa- fabulous little Permian company, six billion market cap, great inventory, likely a consolidation candidate. Um, Diamond Offshore, we love the offshore dynamic. We think more spending's headed toward offshore as U.S. shale plateaus a little bit. So, uh, but as I've said before on your show, I think being involved is the key issue. The stock selection always matters, but do you want to own energy? Yes, you do. Do you think they're going to be disciplined in terms of like returning capital instead of, you know, the Wall Street Journal has this uh, article today. I think they're talking about nat gas, but they're saying, you know, people keep drilling, which is great for your energy bills. But obviously that article is the last thing that investors want to see. Yeah, I think from an investment perspective, these companies, it's becoming embedded that they can't just grow at any price and, and, and spend all of their cash flow. They're returning cash to shareholders. I think that's a, a discipline that's becoming ingrained. And so while gas is oversupplied in the near term, oil is not. And we think these companies are going to keep giving money back to shareholders as either dividends or share repurchases and slow their growth to, to you know, one, two, three percent a year, not 10 or 15. Right. And then in that case, we go back to the idea of capital return. How much is on the table and will it compete with deal making? So, you know, if we start seeing the major players doing that, does that interfere with capital return or just does that become part of, yeah, obviously they're rolling companies up for to enhance that in the long run? Right. I think what we'll see is this commitment to returning at least half of of cash flow back to shareholders. I don't think that's going away. Deals likely on top of that, there'll be a cash component. Some with stock, most sellers want upside exposure. They're not going to sell for cash at these kind of depressed three, four times cash flow valuations. They will take stock. So I think we'll see deals and ongoing uh, dividends and share repurchase. Quick final question. What about Oxy? You know, what about Chevron? And what did you think of Buffett's comments about energy over the weekend? Yeah, you know, I think uh, 
who knows what's really in the mind of, of Warren Buffett. I think Oxy, Chevron, these larger companies, they're both a play on traditional oil and gas and the, the very strong cash flows that we're seeing there, and also a bit of a, a bit of a call option on what's happening in energy transition. So I think that, um, you know, Warren said he's not buying all of Oxy. That's okay. It's still going to generate a, a ton of cash in the next four or five years. And you get the, the play on energy transition as well. So the majors are a fine place to be. We like playing a little bit more offense with some of those smaller upstream producers. Got it. Looking for maybe more upside. Dan, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much today. Thanks, Kelly. Dan Pickering, Pickering Energy Partners. Coming up, trader Jeff Kilburn called it a strong mid-cap stock, trading back to its IPO levels. He's a buyer, and he likes to eat there, too. The CEO behind the company joins us ahead. And with community banks pulling back on loans, family offices are jumping in to fill the gaps. But does that help or hurt risk in the system? We'll explore the ramifications. And as we head to break, here's a look at the Dow heat map. The industrials are down 82 points right now with Disney, Amex, and Visa leading the way. Although we have two to three decliners outpacing advancers. And Home Depot is, again, one of the biggest losers. We're back after this. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to The Exchange. Dow's down almost 100 points. S&P fractionally lower at 41.34. But the Nasdaq is hanging on to a small gain here, a 10-year yield below 3.5%. Let's get to Contessa Brewer for a CNBC News update. Contessa? Hi there, Kelly. And here's what we have for you this hour. The driver who rammed a car into a crowd in front of a Texas shelter has been charged with eight counts of manslaughter. Eight people were killed and nearly a dozen others critically injured following the accident or the incident. Police have not ruled out the possibility that the crash was intentional. At least 22 people are dead after a tourist boat capsized in southern India. Authorities say it appears the boat capsized because of overcrowding. Search teams are expected to recover more bodies from inside the boat as they continue to uh, try to see if there's anyone left that they can rescue. The Arab League has readmitted Syria after a 12-year suspension. Syria's membership was suspended in 2011 after a crackdown on street protests erupted into a civil war which has killed nearly half a million people. All of the member states that attended the session endorsed the decision to readmit Syria. U.S. officials have criticized that move. Kelly. All right, Contessa. Thank you, Contessa mm-hmm. Brewer. Coming up, PayPal has only beaten uh, PayPal has only beaten earnings. She said six times out of the past 19 reports. Will we get updates on Lucid subpoena from the SEC? And Warner Music Group has made a big bet on AI already. Will it pay off? We'll get the action, the story, and the trade on all three names in earnings exchange. And throughout May, CNBC is celebrating Asian American and Pacific Islander heritage with stories of some of their influential business leaders. Here is the So Money podcast host, Farnoosh Tarabi. What I would love for people to learn and take away from my own journey as an Iranian American is that when you stay financially curious, that's when you can actually start to build wealth. It is the ultimate foundation for getting answers and leading you down the paths that are well aligned with your goals.
Welcome back. It's time for Earnings Exchange. And today we've got the action, the story, and the trade on a payment stock, a beleaguered EV maker, and an under-the-radar AI name. So we'll start with PayPal, which reports after the bell today. The shares are up 7% this year. Not bad, but they're still about 26 below their 52-week high. Here with the details, Christina Partsinevelis and Piper Sandler's chief market technician, Craig Johnson, is here with our trades today. Welcome to both of you. Christina, what are you watching? Uh, there's four things that I'm watching. The first one is e-commerce sales and whether they're going to hold up because that could drive revenue for PayPal. I say that because Visa and Q1 posted their uh, Visa with no card present. That was up 9%. The uh, MasterCard e-commerce spending pulse was up 11.5%. And then you only just had Amazon that really has showed uh, some sales flat in Q1. So that's point number one. Point number two, PayPal versus Apple Pay. Is PayPal losing market share to competitors? And more importantly, also is how is PayPal leveraging its Venmo brand? The third point too, and it plays into that, is the traction with merchants, so engagement level. Uh, Previously, PayPal had said that they have a 75% traction with the top 100 internet retailers around the globe, and 33% of those 100 retailers use a, a, a more advanced version of PayPal. So will that penetration increase? And then last but not least, but is very important, the fact that they do not have a CEO successor. The CEO, Dan Shulman, is uh, set to retire by the end of this year. They still haven't named who is going to replace him. You know, thinking about we're in May right now and you want a long term uh, plan for this company and there's no CEO. So how do you do that? How about Elon Musk? Uh, Anybody? (laughs) Uh, Of of PayPal? If anything, uh, one prediction was the CEO of Pinterest. Bill Reddy. That's an old, uh, I was going to say rivalry. Well, frenemies. Anyway, uh, Craig, what would you do with shares of PayPal here? Well, look at PayPal, and we're still 76% off of the all-time highs. We've been essentially stuck in a trading range. Uh, The lower end of the range is around 71, upper end is 78. If I look at the options market, the applied option move coming into the move tonight, it suggests that we're still not going to break out of this range. So I view this from a technical perspective is really just a hold in here at this point in time. And uh, I think that there's probably stock. Again, I'll just add that you're also below the declining 200-day moving average. So the stock's not trending well, just sort of been sideways in here. I'd call it a hold stuck in the range on the print. And that, Christina, that's interesting, by the way, that Visa has announced this partnership. You know, everyone trying to figure out who is disintermediating, disintermediating whom. And they all seem to make partnerships. So you can't escape anybody. They're all linked together. Exactly. And the fact that you saw with Visa and MasterCard that there was still some strengths. They're, they're talking about this partnership. They're stealing market share. So then who is left to, to lose that market share? Right. And so hopefully it's not PayPal in this case. Right. All right. We'll leave it there. Thank you, uh, Christina. Christina Parts and Evelis. And we'll turn our attention to Lucid, whose shares are down 5% or so. Well, they've paired that into the print. Uh, last month, they produced more than 2,000 cars at their facility in Arizona. They delivered 1,400 vehicles during the first quarter. And the SEC closed its investigation into Lucid last week. For more, let's bring in our Phil LeBeau. Hi, Phil. What are you watching? Kelly, it comes down to production, cash burn, and liquidity. And on the production side, you talked about the first quarter production. The question is, what are they going to say about 2023 full-year production? Previous guidance was 10,000 to 14,000 vehicles. Does it look like they're going to be able to keep that? In terms of cash burn, look, they're expected to post another quarterly loss. But the question is, liquidity-wise, they had $4.9 billion at the end of last year. They said at the time, look, that's enough to get us through the first quarter of 2024. Is that still the outlook? Or have things improved or deteriorated? That's what people are going to be focused on when they report, report the results after the bell. Craig, are you a buyer here? 
I'm going to be a buyer here, just from the perspective. This is not a fundamental call, to be clear. But if I step back and I just look at the chart, we've been in a downtrend for an extended period of time. But when I come back and I look to the quarterly previous quarterly earnings prints, <clears throat> the average move has been around 13%. The options market is suggesting that we could see about a 6.6% implied move in here. I think it's, call it a trade at this point in time, call it a trading buy uh, into the print and as uh, expectations, uh, as Phil has mentioned, are extremely negative in here. Uh, if they don't come out as negative as they expected, with a very high short interest of about 22%, there could be a short, uh, short squeeze here with the stock creating a trading opportunity. But again, to be clear, it's not a long-term hold. Sure. Just a trading buy. Yeah, and we're just below about $8 a share going into that. Phil, an indication of sentiment is the question I'm going to ask you is, how are there still so many players? You know, why hasn't there been more consolidation? This is an incredibly capital-intensive business. Borrowing costs, as we now know, are through the roof. Um, are people just kind of waiting this out to see who can make a go of it in the next couple of years? Yes. Yes, exactly. They've got enough liquidity that nobody has been forced to the point of pain of saying, I can't do it. We give up. Is there a combination with another automaker out there? So you've got a number of these companies. And this week we get the pure EV startups, whether you're talking about Lucid today, tomorrow we'll hear from Fisker. After the bell tomorrow, we hear from Rivian. The question is, where are these guys in terms of their liquidity? They're going to make it through this year. What happens in 24 and 25? That's really the question. The, the, the established automakers, Kelly, they, they've got more than enough uh, liquidity and capital to last for a long time. We're not going to see any consolidation in that in that area anytime soon. As we show the stocks, uh, Rivian, Fisker, obviously Tesla, Craig, do any of them, I'm thinking about Tesla in particular, jump out at you as uh, exhibiting, you know, something you want to strongly buy or sell at this point? No, I mean, when I look at a chart of Tesla, it still looks to be on a longer term chart, still to be a distributional looking chart. Uh, not been a big fan of the uh, the EV companies at this point in time. I think it's just going to take more time. And again, a little bias living here in Minnesota, not great vehicles when it's 20 below zero. No, and it's that way for what, six, seven months out of the year sometimes? Uh, Phil Some people think longer. Right. Except my brother's there as well. So I believe me, I get the updates. Uh, Phil, thank you. Our Phil Lebeau, we'll see you in a few more minutes. And we'll finish out here with Warner Music Group. I almost said Warner Brothers. Uh, it's been a rough year for Warner Music Group, down 20 percent. Morgan Stanley's bullish, though, saying they continue to see streaming music and audio as an attractive growth market. They've got an overweight rating. And the company disclosed a big AI bet back in 2020. Uh, and Julia, they've already been using it, I guess, to file a bunch more lawsuits, which seems like the natural use of AI in America. Uh, what are you, uh, Julia Borson, I should add, is here with us. What are you watching for in the results? Well, I think the interesting thing about this quarter for Warner Music Group is that the top and bottom line results are expected to be pretty much in line with where they were last year, within 1% um, on both the top and bottom line. But what's much more important here is what we learned from the company about its digital revenue and about its subscription revenue in particular. Are they seeing meaningful increase in growth in that subscription revenue growth as, of course, so much of the mu music industry has shifted to the subscription services such as Apple Music and Spotify? The second key thing we're looking for here is an update on the ad-supported music subscription market. There's a lot of talk about weakness in the ad market. The question is, what are they seeing there? Are they seeing the ad market stabilizing, which is the term that Mark Zuckerberg used, or how do they see that moving forward? And then third, we just have to remember that this is a company that's been run by Robert Kinsel, who used to be the chief business officer 
for YouTube. He's just hmm. been running Warner Music Group since the beginning of this year. So he obviously has a great depth of experience in things such as AI and how to deploy AI, but also how to better monetize assets across all of these digital platforms. So he hasn't been there that long. This is his second uh, second quarter that we're going to be hearing from. And it's going to be fascinating to see what kind of guidance he gives, particularly around things such as margins. So listening closely um, for more insight from what Robert Kinsel has to say about the second half of the year, does he see accelerating growth in the second half of the year, which is something some analysts are looking for. That's really interesting. So maybe he's got to do more, Craig, to convince you to uh, to be a buyer here. Yeah, I'm not a buyer on this one at all. In terms of uh, the Warner Music Group, uh, it's 42% off of its highs. It's in a pretty well-defined downtrend below 50, 200-day moving averages. If we look at the price action around the earnings print coming up, they got an implied volatility of around 7.8%. And at this point in time, the shorter-term uptrend has been broken off of the October lows. So from my perspective, uh, this is a stock that it looks like a sell to me than a buy or even a hold at this point in time, given the price action that we're seeing in the crossovers and the moving averages. Again, all things technically point to the stock moving lower. Sure. And, uh, you know, this is hardly a technical question. Uh, I was just going to ask about any of the music stock. You know, there's Spotify. I don't really know which other ones kind of come to mind, but you'd think this is such a secular trend. Everyone's, you know, streaming music all the time. And yet it's been a struggle on the investment side. Definitely has been a struggle on the investment side. I think you get players out there such as Apple and Apple Music and those things that are literally uh, consolidating the market. And that's uh, where I think you're seeing a lot of the uh, the pain coming in for a lot of these companies. Julia, quick final word. Yeah, I mean, I just think I'd be watching what Robert Kinsel has to say. It's worth noting that they did already do layoffs. Um, they cut 4% of the staff since he started. Um, and the question is now restructuring the company. He did not crucially cut any jobs in that AI-focused space or in terms of these roles that are going to be figuring out future revenue streams. So I think it's going to be interesting to see what we learn from him and how he's going to take everything he learned at YouTube to really transform this, this music company. All right. It's going to be a busy week. We look forward to these results and others. Craig, will let you go. Thank you. Enjoy. Our thanks to you as well. Coming up after a break, the KRE, the regional bank ETF, lower today, but the likes of PacWest and Western Alliance are actually some of its best performers. Uh, shares up five and a half and two and a half percent, respectively. There, uh, they've paired their gains about one and a half percent gains right now. Uh, but with regional bank concerns persisting, smaller firms are looking to fill in some lending gaps across the country. We'll talk about why family offices are stepping up next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Family offices are ready to assume the role of community bankers, according to a new Goldman survey. While that might sound like an easy fix to tighter lending or maybe a crazy idea, uh, it does have some risks. Robert Frank is here now with the details. This is kind of surprising to me. It was surprising and really interesting financial trend. Family offices now holding a lot of cash and they plan to put some of that to work into private credit. A new family office survey from Goldman Sachs shows that nearly a third of family offices plan to invest more in private credit this year. That makes it one of their top investments. Private credit is where small groups of investors and institutions, they make their loans directly to companies without a bank. Now, the big attraction here is double-digit returns thanks to these higher interest rates and growing demand because small and medium-sized banks simply aren't lending as much. I think it leaves room um, for a whole new group of investors to kind of come in um, and be really opportunistic in this space. And if you know anything about family offices, they love being opportunistic on dislocations. It's why we see higher cash balances. 
The private credit market has tripled over the past eight years to $1.4 trillion. It's larger than venture capital right now, but it also has risks as companies struggle to meet these rising debt payments. So family offices are mostly working with special managers or funds in order to start investing in this space. Now, as for the rest of their money, well, family offices are holding about 12% of their assets in cash. They have nearly half in alternatives. So that's hedge funds, private equity, and real estate. They've got about 28% in equity, which they also plan to add this year. And you could see all of our latest family office investor interview hmm. out today on CBC Pro. I'm so glad you do this because obviously we get as many warnings about private credit blowing up somehow as we do about commercial real estate and all the rest of it. Um, but I'm very skeptical of the idea that family offices could act like community banks. I mean, you're talking about people being willing. How, if I'm trying to start a local business, you know, let's say a, a cupcake uh, decorating business, and I wanted to get that capital and my bank isn't going to give it to me, how would I even know which family office to turn to? Yeah, well, typically they're going to be investing in larger sort of medium to larger size companies. They're not going to really do the mom and pop cupcake shops, although that might be a good idea. Uh, And also they're doing it through funds or using professional managers who presumably have the due diligence. They're going through Apollo. Goldman Sachs has a fund. KKR doing funds. So but but there are more and more family offices doing it on their own. This is not a regulated space. The returns have been high for a reason. These are floating rate loans that have never been through a recession. And so this will be a real test for those family offices that want to do it on their own. Do they really understand the risk? And do, you know, does it blow up or not? I'm not saying I want to open a cupcake decorating business, by the way. It is not my, you know, secret dream, but there's plenty of people trying to do that. And I don't know. Right. And and the loan rates are double. You're getting double digit returns for a reason. I mean, these people can't get capital anywhere else. Exactly. And with the banks not lending, at least this could cushion the blow for the broader economy if banks start pulling back. Yeah, absolutely. Robert, thank you. Robert Frank. Still ahead, shares of Portillo's are climbing more than 26 percent this year, but it's been a rough go since earnings last week, down about 12 percent on an unexpected loss. We will discuss with Portillo CEO Michael Osenloo right after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. A little disappointing earnings pressuring shares of Portillo's. The fast casual chain reported a penny loss and delays in a few new store openings. The shares are still up 26% this year, though. And Guggenheim just upgraded them to a buy on those very openings and the company's own forecast of easing inflation. Joining me now in an Exchange-exclusive interview is Michael Osanlu, Portillo's CEO. Michael, it's good to see you again. Welcome. See you. Thanks for having me on. I think I remember the IPO when we first uh, chatted a couple of years back. How many stores do you have now? We're up to 78. Um, I think there's something incorrect. We, we, we're not delayed on any stores. So we're, we're, we've got nine planned for the back half of the year. We've been thrilled with the new restaurants that we're opening. And I, you know, uh, we opened recently in Texas to, geez, some of the biggest crowds we've ever seen. And so we're super excited about uh, the new openings and where we are in our development cycle. And if I'm not mistaken, you're looking at the Southeast as well. And I was joking, but kind of wondering, how does a a kind of Chicago sandwich shop makes a lot of hot, delicious sandwiches translate that to a much warmer climate? I mean, how, you know, does does that translate? You know, it's a great question. And I think it's actually something that some people have been sitting on the sidelines wondering about. Um, I'll tell you, we have restaurants in Orlando, Florida, and now in Dallas, Texas, that are rivaling any of the restaurants that we have in Chicagoland. And not surprising to us, at least, or to me, is that the number one thing we're selling is Italian beef. I think the simple truth is that a beef sandwich made by Portillo's, which is this delicious shave-thin beef, beautiful sauce, beautiful gravy on on crusty French bread. 
it's just a food that transfers. It's a food that works everywhere. I joke with some people that, wow, your restaurant's doing so well in Texas. Why do you think that is? And I said, well, apparently Texas enjoys beef and bread. Right. So. What a shocker. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Let's talk about some of the nuts and bolts that are affecting uh, people and everyone's wondering about. So yeah. I don't know if you saw Tyson's today is down big because they're still facing some input cost pressures, but feel like they can't pass it along as much. Anything like that on the horizon for you? No, I think we feel really great about where we are. You know, we, we reported a quarter. Uh, I agree with you that the, the response by the market was a bit surprising, but you know, we were up 16% on the top line. We're, we improved our restaurant level margins, uh, 24% in terms of dollars. We expanded margins and we we're up in transaction count. We had more people visiting Portillo's this quarter than last year. And I think it's because we're being very careful about protecting the consumer value proposition. We purposefully did not pass all of our costs on to consumers in 22. And so as we go into 23, uh, we think we're in a great spot. You know, I I, I look at our value proposition every day. Uh, It's a really great bundle that you get at Portillo's at a really great price point. So I think I think businesses that are doing that are, are in a good spot right now. Are you done raising prices? Uh, we announced that we raised a little bit in early May. Um, we're just announced just a couple days ago, but but it's actually our prices have come down year over year, just a hair um, in terms of the, the price raise. We have announced no other other plans to raise prices this year. We're going to sit back and see see how commodities play out, see how labor inflation plays out, yeah. and see where the consumer's mindset is. Only have a, a little bit of time left, but labor market, easier to get people, still hard? Are you hoarding a word you're, you know you don't want to let anyone go? It, it's still very tough for a lot of different reasons, but we're actually seeing a lot of improvement. Um, we're seeing that there are people who are back interested in getting into work, and we're seeing the good people. It's actually the quality of the people that we're hiring is better than ever, which is, I think is very exciting for us. I know. It's in a weird way. I'm like, maybe that's not a good sign for the rest of the economy, though, right? It should be <laughs> should be hard to find those people. But uh, but I take your point as an operator, Michael. Thanks for joining yeah. us today. Thank you very much. Michael Asanlu is the CEO of Portillo's. Uh, Dow's down about 63 points right now as we come off the lows of the session. NASDAQ had turned positive a moment ago, but watch the regional banks who's uh, repairing our gains from earlier in a couple of the hardest hit names. That does it for the exchange. Everybody there has mentioned PacWest and Western Alliance, but now they're back up to 3% gains, so it's still volatile today. For more uh, analysis on markets and the economy, you can sign up for my newsletter in one easy step, cnbc.com slash newsletters. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.